you flew over Joe Rogan's new place? Yeah, we fly over his house all the time, actually, and you would have never known that. All right, welcome to episode 67 of the Rescue Swimmer Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Vince. Today, we have our first non-military guest, a civilian who flies with the very cool organization called Star Flight, based out of Austin, Texas. We cover their mission, the medical emergencies, the many medical emergencies they have to deal with, as well as their firefighting abilities and their swift water rescue techniques. I also want to give my apologies to Alan Murphy, who was our actual scheduled guest for this week, but my mistake, I completely messed up the day that we were recording. So Alan is a prior Navy rescue swimmer as well as a master's swimming coach. So he used to train people how to swim in proper technique. And we we're going to break that down. So hopefully we can have Alan on in the future. But in the meanwhile, please check out at Aircrew Supply Co on Instagram. So that's Aircrew Supply and then CO. And he makes amazing work as far as doing military type patches and basically any type of patches. So reach out to Alan and hopefully, Alan, we can reconnect and have that podcast down the road. If you want to support this podcast, you know what to do. Go to Apple's podcasts and leave a rating and a review. And if you want to train like a helicopter rescue swimmer and you want to support us, then you do so by going to rescueswimmermindset.com. You can check out the programs if you're trying to train like a rescue swimmer or just get fit in general day-to-day life. Check out our programs. We've got pool workouts. we got running workouts. We have underwater programs. So check it all out, rescueswimmermindset.com. Without further ado, my guest, Starflight Senior Paramedic, John Hamilton. All right, John Hamilton, thanks so much for coming on on such short notice yes sir thanks for having me you called my bluff for sure so happy to be here yeah so posted on instagram a couple hours ago john was like yeah you can have me on and that's more or less a joke and i was like yeah we will have you on john we're gonna have you on let's do this right now here we are yeah so you are a senior flight paramedic based out of austin texas is that correct that is correct. I've been with Starflight for about two and a half years. Um, I was here for about a year and uh, promoted to uh, the senior position, which is we're like the field training officers for Starflight. So when somebody gets hired, all of the kind of medical chart review and quality assurance stuff is kind of under our umbrella of stuff that we do. But yeah, Bennett Starflight was a dream job of mine since I was, I think, 15 years old. And uh, October of 2018, I, I landed it. And what were you doing before this? So uh, I've been a paramedic for 12 years, going on 13. On the civilian side, we all start out as just a regular ground paramedic on a regular ambulance you see driving down the road. And then um, those of us that move into the flight world, usually after about three to five years of experience doing that on a ground ambulance, we can test for flight paramedic positions. So in early 2012, um, I started flying and that's kind of where I've been ever since flying in a rotor flight paramedic position. Does that tend to be a quite sought after position for paramedics? Definitely. Yeah. So it's unfortunately paramedics on the ground, depending on where we are, if we're in a like a busy metro area, 
the ambulances are insanely busy nowadays. Like I have friends that are doing, you know, 18, 20 plus calls in a 24 hour shift and uh, it just wears you out. Yeah, getting onto the helicopter for a paramedic, some have said the pinnacle of, you know, where a paramedic can go in their career. Um, it's not for everybody, you know, flying in helicopters is not for everybody. But the cool thing about it is that usually when the helicopter is called, those patients are the ones that truly, really need our help. Usually if you're flying somebody to the hospital, they're either pretty sick or, you know, pretty injured. What's the most monotonous or... I don't want to say ridiculous, but I'm going to say ridiculous case you've been called on as a ground paramedic. Oof. Honestly, now after doing it for so long, you forget about them. You try not to be, like I said earlier, too jaded about it because if somebody calls 911, like nine times out of 10, that person is having a really bad day, right? Like they called you for a reason. So something that I might get a little bit frustrated with for not being that serious to that patient or that person, it's a bad day, right? We get called quite often by what we call urban outdoorsmen, literally for a ride from one side of the city to the other. And they know that when they call 911, we have to come and we can't tell them that we're not going to take them to a hospital. It's stuff like that, that, you know, this, we could have a and people do have podcasts on this topic that are hours long, right? We could talk all day about the abuse of the system, but it's it's just a part of the job. You know, usually it's not that bad, but every once in a while, those are the kinds of calls that you're just like, seriously, what is going on? But yeah, you don't get that on the helicopter, obviously. You get to know these, I mean, you're saying what is it urban campers but urban outdoorsmen yeah yeah so but you get to know them on a pretty name-to-name -name basis if you frequent them enough right kind of the way that i always looked at it was if they're a human too right they're a person too so no matter what their circumstance if you took time to like talk to the person and kind of figure out what they needed or, you know, what the problem was or what was putting them in that situation and actually had like a conversation with them. A lot of the people are really interesting people. They just have come into a bad time in their life, right? And they needed some help. Let's get into the flight paramedic because that's what people want to know about. How's it funded? What organization is this under? So Starflight stands for Shock Trauma Air Rescue. Um, it is a Travis County asset funded by the taxpayers of Travis County. They pay essentially a Starbucks coffee every year to fund our program. It was founded in 1985. It was a kind of a cooperation between Austin EMS and uh, one of the big level one trauma centers in Travis County. If anybody knows anything about the central Texas area or Travis County specifically, we have uh, the Colorado River. It's not the same Colorado that goes through the Grand Canyon, but Colorado River runs through Travis County and way back in the day, they put dams up kind of along the river and created lakes. A lot of it was for like electricity generation and whatever back in the day, but they had a really hard time getting ambulances on the other side of that lake. 
it would take, you know, half hour plus to get an ambulance from the city back then out to these kind of rural parts of the county. So they, um, they bought a helicopter, a paramedic from Austin EMS would jump on with a nurse from that hospitals called, or was called Brackenridge. And they would go out and, um, essentially be the ambulance for these 911 calls out, you know, in the rural parts of the area. And as time went on, it evolved into what it is today. So the thing that makes us a little bit different than, you know, the normal helicopter EMS systems in the United States um, is that we do work, we have multi-mission profile. So our bread and butter, the stuff that we do every day, day in, day out, 365 days a year, all day, um, is helicopter EMS. So our crew is a flight paramedic, a flight nurse, and a pilot. Our primary mission is going on EMS calls either in Travis County or the 19 counties that surround Austin um, and picking up you know, heart attacks, strokes, car accidents, trauma patients, um, moving patients that are really sick from the small hospitals and bringing them back into the city. Um, that's our primary mission. We probably do, I would say, two, two to three flights in a 12-hour shift um, doing that stuff. And the multi-mission stuff comes in could be at any time, day or night. Austin sits on a big old bed of limestone and granite. So in the spring and the fall and summertime, our busy times are spring and fall for, for flooding events. But when it rains, it rains. I don't know if you've ever been through a Texas thunderstorm, but it, it rains. Um, like three to five inches is not uncommon to get out of one storm. And when all of that water hits that bed of limestone, it has nowhere to go. So the creeks that may have been a trickle an hour before are now literally like rushing rapids, like legit rivers. And some of those spots, you know, we have a lot of low water crossings. Um, so the roadways around will get flooded really quick. And uh, if it's nighttime or early morning, a lot of these people can't see that the water is there. And so they'll drive into it um, and get swept away or, you know, rivers have people have houses on the river, right? And the river comes up a few feet and now they're stuck in their house. What kind of training do you guys undergo to operate in swift water? You know, in a rushing source of water, do you maneuver? Do you just get lowered? Is it quick in and out? How does that go? Yeah. So if I'm doing my job as a crew chief, my swimmer never gets wet. Um, most of the time, these people either stay in their car if they're swept away in their car or they get onto the roof of it. If they were unlucky enough to get swept away, hopefully they're grabbing onto a tree or some, some sort of debris that's stationary in the water. And so, yeah, if I'm doing my job as a crew chief, my swimmer hopefully never gets wet. That's not always possible and it's, it's few and far between, but we go through, so being on the ground here, um, I was part of the EMS department that I worked for had a special operations team and part of that team was swift water rescue technician. So there's a course, it's a 40 hour course, technician course, same as 
you know, if you go through like a hazmat course or anything like that, um, you go through to the technician level for swift water. So, um, we try and get everybody through a course like that. Um, that way, if for some reason they do have to come off hook, they kind of know what to do to get to the shore and to, you know, perform safely in that environment. Um, but wait, all of our on, training, sorry. some of these hazmat courses sometimes are online. This isn't like a swift water <laughs> online course, is it? No, no, definitely not. A swift water online course would be really boring and really pointless. Um, yeah, so we, there's a few different um, training centers that have, you know, like, um, I know up in Tarrant County, like North Texas built this entire swift water training, like facility. So what they have pumps like? and... It's pretty awesome. Um, I have yet to be there myself in person. I've seen video and pictures of it, but they built like channels, you know, and then they have pumps that they can raise and lower the water or speed up the current or slow it down, all this stuff. Um, here in Texas or in, in the Austin area, we have a few local rivers that usually like if you were to go there and in the middle of July, there'd be a bunch of drunk college kids like inner tubing down the river, right? Um, but there's a few tube shoots and stuff that they've built into that, that we, we utilize for training. So definitely a lot of hands-on Austin, the whole area is kind of called flash flood alley. And so all of the fire departments, um, all of the EMS departments have, you know, the state has resources that have teams and teams and teams of people that are experts in, you know, how to how to deal with these flood events and, and how to rescue people. So we usually try and latch on to those guys and, and get our people through, you know, some sort of swift water tech training. All of the stuff on the helicopter side is all in-house. So um, we have a program that's built within Starflight that's a, a credentialing process is what I'll call it. Um, to get a rescuer up to standards. Um, we train a lot. I'd probably once a shift, we're doing some sort of, we call it crew-based training or a CBT. So usually once a shift, weather dependent, we're going out and doing some sort of hoisting evolution just so that it's muscle memory, right? And it's built into to how we function. Um so that's kind of how we go through the training. It's pretty intense. Um, nothing compared to like a school in the Coast Guard, but uh, we do mirror a lot of our training evolutions and competencies against, you know, what those guys are doing. So what would be an example as far as a training evolution goes? So we have a program called a waterman's test. So when everybody gets hired, um, they go through some pretty intense water training, um, swift water, and then our own, like I said, our own waterman's test. So it's swimming with gear. Um, I'll, I'll back up. So to even be hired, as a flight paramedic or a flight nurse at Starflight, we go through an agility test. So yeah, I saw that. That's yeah, cool. it's it, cool. it, it's a good time, and it's um, 
it's kind of one of my beefs with EMS, you know, EMS with the lifestyle that I was talking about earlier. It's a lot of fast food and sitting on corners and it's pretty easy to get into a unfit lifestyle. Um, so I wish that more services would do some sort of physical agility test, but for us, it's a 300 meter swim in eight minutes or less, um, a half, a mile and a half run in 13 minutes or less, or a three mile ruck with a 45 pound vest on in 45 minutes or less. You say, um, so you don't have to do all three. No, you, you have to do the swim and then you do either the run or the ruck. So like I'm a swimmer, right? I've uh, been swimming all my life and I cannot run to save my life. So if I go out and I do the run, I'm like right at 12 minutes to get that mile and a half done and I hate it. So I always do the ruck, right? We let the candidate choose um, what they want to do. In the end, I should probably just become a better runner because it would be a lot <laughs> a lot easier. Um, but yeah, you do one or the other and you have to pass both of those to continue in the process. Um, and then after that, uh, we do an agility test, which is, do you know what like rescue Randy is like yeah. the, the human sized dummies, um, you got to drag him through, you know, like a serpentine course almost. Right. And then, uh, put him on a stretcher and carry him with a partner so many feet and then, um, some equipment, just different equipment carries and stuff like that. Just that you would find doing the job, the different movements and stuff like that. So that's the agility, the agility course part of it. One thing I recall in EMT school that we had, they had us do was very fun. It was towing a fairly heavy dummy out of a in parentheses burning building. So it was just down the hallway at the EMT school and they had everybody running. And I believe the the goal I guess that they didn't, they weren't exactly clear about was grab the dummy by the whatever, like the sh over his shoulder clothing. Right. And just yeah. pull him backwards, but they didn't really verbalize as far as pulling backwards. And I recall I did it by putting him more or less on my hip. Cause as a rescue swimmer, that's how we tow people. Right. So I was like, well, and I can also run faster <laughs> if I'm facing forward rather than backwards. I'm just going to do that. And I exactly. remember crushing the time like by a lot in comparison to the other swimmers and everyone in that school. And I was proud. And then a really competitive, a great swimmer. His name was Tyler. He does it, but he does it backwards and gets real close to my time. And that's when they, the instructors call me back and they go, Hey, hey Vince, you got to do this again. You did it. You did it sideways. There's no way you can beat Tyler in this backwards right. and I was like fair it's probably very fair yeah so I you went, did it wrong and you I, gotta do and, it again yeah and I went and right off the get-go I, I was like this is no way this is gonna go well <laughs> and I somehow did pretty good and I remember right at the finish line I did the jump back across the finish line just shuck the dummy over the finish line and right. by, by a fraction of a second i somehow beat tyler but it was that was just like the the competitive ego in us. yes definitely yeah. yeah so that's it's just like carrying dead weight right the the amount of times that i've had to actually carry somebody dead weight i think like i can't even think of one right now off the top of my head right it never happens but 
just having the physical fitness to be able to to carry somebody dead weight. I guess in a previous life, I was a firefighter before I got on the helicopter, and and that's a little bit more realistic, right? If your partner goes down in a fire, um, you got to drag them out. But kind of the other ways that we mirror what the, uh, I guess I'll use the Coast Guard. So full disclosure, I was not in the Coast Guard. I don't, you know, we don't uh, see those guys a whole lot. I, I would like to, I'd love to go through some of their stuff, but we have their manual that we kind of look through and, and try and mirror some of the stuff off of that. Um, all of the gear swims, um, all of our, our new hires have to be able to swim at least a 300 by the end of that day, they're swimming thousands of meters in their gear and, and doing, you know, uh, victim toes and all that stuff. Um, but swimming in the gear, because that's, you know, you're going to have to do that. If, if you get into the water, um, you got to be comfortable in that gear. So we try and mirror a lot of what those guys do as far as the training, just because they, they seem to be doing it pretty right. You know, um, I would say that's how we closely, we have what's called an ASM. So an air crew standards manual that outlines all of our hoisting techniques, all of our rescue techniques and the different things that we evaluate, you know, not just new rescuers, but all rescuers. Um, that's kind of the metric we use is that book. And that book is, I would say very closely mirrored to what, you know, the Navy and the Coast Guard do for their programs. So I wonder how many civilian organizations do that because it is available online. Anybody that's listening, you can look up the rescue swimmer manual and different Coast Guard training manuals online. You just, I think, I don't know. I, I think the name is actually Coast Guard helicopter rescue swimmer manual or aviation survival technician manual. Either way, there's, a lot of literature out there for people that just want to educate themselves on how to help somebody out in a water situation. Definitely. I mean, it's a, it's a very good laid out, you know, piece of literature that, you know, like I said earlier, if you, if you're asked who does this right or who the experts are, if you ask me that question, that's what I'm going to tell you, right? The Coast Guard is the, you guys do this every day as a service. So, um, I think that was the, you know, that manual got put together long before I was at Starflight, but, um, now as a trainer myself, that's, that's what we go back to when we try and evaluate something or, you know, come up with a new process. That's the type of stuff that we fall back on. So that said, can we get into some of the gnarlier, cases pertaining to swift water rescue that you guys have to deal with? Yeah, definitely. So full disclosure, I've been at Starflight for two and a half years. Uh, Mother Nature has been extremely kind to us in that two and a half years. So I have yet to, um, I've been on some incidents that are indirectly caused by the flooding, but nothing that is like the true, like, really down and dirty swift water rescues that we do. I have yet to do one of those myself. Um, as a program, we've done hundreds of them. Um, and I guess when you, like earlier, when you were asking me about, you know, cases to talk about, the one that comes to my mind 
is, uh, shoot, I don't remember when it was. It was several years ago. One of the Austin EMS commanders was driving to work in the morning. It was still dark out. And he had driven on this road, what, thousands of times probably throughout his career going to work. And the flooding overnight had gotten so bad that it was now literally a river over that road. And it was so dark out that he couldn't see it. He drove right into it. He was driving a Jeep and the Jeep got swept away. The crews, the fire department and the other EMS crews, thankfully he still had his cell phone and it was still working. So he was able to call in to his own 911 center and talk to his coworkers and be like, I was just swept away. Here's where I was. I don't know where my Jeep is traveling to, but like, I need you guys to help me out. Like he listening to the, there's some videos you could YouTube about it. Um, and where he actually sits down and gives his account. And man, it just makes like the hair stand up on the back of your neck, right? Like he was in a true life or death situation. And so the, the fire guys couldn't get to him. Nobody could really figure out where he was. So back then the, the cell phone, like GPS tracing or tracking wasn't as good as it is today. Right. So they knew that he was in this general area but they didn't know exactly where he was. And so they launched the aircraft. Um, it was still pretty early in the morning um, to go and find him or to attempt to find him. And uh, they actually, one of my favorite pilots, who's an ex-Coast Guard pilot, he flew career for the Coast Guard, um, amazing pilot, um, saw... I can't remember if it was the guy's taillights or if it was his cell phone, but they found the Jeep pinned up against a truck. And, uh, that paramedic, I believe was able to like climb up the tree a little bit so that he was out of his Jeep. And, uh, they were able to, I remember the weather was, it was thunderstorming still, still raining. So they were flying and really just crap weather. And, uh, they picked him out, saw him, found where he was, told everybody where he was, but the, the water was so big that nobody could get to him by boat or by ground, right? They couldn't throw any ropes to him from the shore. They couldn't, the water was too fast for a boat. And, uh, so they hoisted our rescuer down, got him. We use what's called a strop so it's, I don't know if the Coast Guard uses those or not. It's an orange deal that you can, you know, essentially get around somebody real quick. Um, they're terrible, like torture device, uncomfortable. But um, they got him in the strop, got him into the aircraft, you know, flew him to safety. But I think over the course of the years, we've done far more like probably technical or you know, far more like juicy story rescues. But that one always comes to my mind because that guy's essentially our brother, right? Like we had ran countless calls with him. He knew everybody at Starflight, everybody at Starflight knew him. And so they were essentially going to rescue one of their own. And um, 
man, really like, I think that guy in, in his video account of it, he says that, or he feels like if the aircraft wasn't available to come and get him, that he probably would have died. Um, so really like when you look back on the foundation of why is Starflight a thing in Travis County or, you know, when the taxpayers question, well, no other county has this, why am I paying for this service? That's a huge example of what we bring to the table, right? Like that could have been your brother, it could have been your dad, it could have been you. And when all else fails or, you know, fire guys are super busy with other calls or just they can't get to somebody, that's what we're for. And uh, so that's that's kind of cool. It's It all worked out, right? He's safe and sound. And, and that's the thing. It sounds like at this point he's stranded, right? He A boat can't access it because the currents are too strong. And even if people were able to throw a rope, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't sound like you could just tow somebody through that strong current. They usually just go underwater or debris is going to hit them on the on the toe end. So that's not even really something. It's not a viable option per se, is it? Yeah, definitely. So it's it's not the the best way to get to somebody. It's kind of a last resort. And you know, the other thing that a lot of people don't think about is when they think about Texas, they think about the heat, right? Everybody thinks about Texas being so hot. But when that water, like the rainwater is cold. So these people are hanging onto these trees for sometimes hours. Like they're cold and they are done. They are absolutely no strength left whatsoever. And so, you know, like our senior rescuers or, or the guys that have been with Starflight forever that have done a bunch of these always talk about getting to the victim and the victim, like the first thing that they do is they jump out and they grab onto our rescuer because they are so just every last ounce of reserve that they had is gone. And, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, that's exactly right. You can use kind of the rope as a pendulum and get them into shore theoretically, but yeah, you're not accounting for that person's got no more strength left and there's all this crap floating in the water that's, you know, could take them out. And all the stuff that's hidden under the water too is the other thing that, you know, there's water during these events in places that there should not ever be water in. And so you don't know what it looks like underneath the water, especially if it's dark. So, yeah. yeah do you guys ever do that? If, if a survivor is desperate and latching onto you do you guys have that physical relocation where you're you teach the it's more or less a bear hug right you yeah grab physical grip to, yeah physical grip and you can and we ac actually discovered one way and i don't know if it's taught per se but if you interlace your legs in between their legs and just tie your own like ankles together it's really easy to just support everything with regardless more or less as how big the person is, but just holding on to that person, keeping them while you just relocate them. The helo lifts you up. And I don't know about you guys, but we gave a signal with just our head when we were ready to, to move. And yeah. at that point, your arms are interlocked and you definitely person somewhere else. Um, it kind of all goes into the, the crew chief part of our operation. So the crew chief up until about, 
a year, a little over a year ago, um, we just got three brand new helicopters. I'll tell you about those later. They're pretty cool. But there's a system on these new helicopters called Axness. Do you guys use that in the Coast Guard? Are you familiar with that? Maybe, but I don't know. That so name. it's it's um, essentially a hands-free um, ICS system that's tied into the aircraft ICS or the, the communication system within the aircraft. And the rescuer wears that on the vest and plugs into a headset um, that they're wearing all the time. So up until a few years ago, if I wanted to talk to the aircraft as the rescuer, I would have to push a button that was on my like left chest and key up my water radio. And that was the only way that I could talk to the aircraft. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But um, this new Axness system allows me to talk to the rescuer as a crew chief as if they're sitting right next to me in the aircraft. Sorry for interrupting, but is this that really cool face mask, that Donald Ducky looking black, <laughs> like spec ops looking mask that you guys wear? Does that yeah, have yeah. comms in there? No. Well, it, it does. So, um, but we don't wear those on water stuff, obviously, because if right. you do get dunked with a big flight helmet on, you'd be at the bottom and real quick, but um, no, this is like, it's a TEA headset that like, if you look at the SWAT guys or, you know, some of the, the military spec ops guys, and they have the ops core helmet on with the, you know, just the real slim mic and, and the headphones, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of that style looking and it's supposed to be waterproof, uh, every once in a while, water, rain, whatever will get into that mic and it's not as clear as it could be, but, um, but could you regardless, swim with that and hear it? Technically you're supposed to be able to, um, we don't, I'll, so for the swift water part, we don't swim, hopefully, like I said in the beginning, um, but I can talk to my rescuer. So back to the physical grip thing real quick. If they have the patient or the victim in a physical grip, hopefully they can say, hey, I've got a physical grip on this guy and I just need you to bring me, you know, 50 yards over there and put me down on shore so that I can kind of regroup, drop the guy, and then we can come up, right? Um, back in the day, we did some stillwater rescue stuff um, out on that lake that I was talking about initially. It's called Lake Travis. Um, you know, people would get lost or get into boat collisions or something like that, and we would go out and we would do stillwater stuff. Nowadays, uh, every fire department that has some sort of district on that lake has a boat. So those guys have the boat stationed um, in a spot that they can respond to almost immediately. And so they can get to the boat collision or whatever incident that's on the still water way faster than we can. Um, so our still water stuff is not as active as it once was. Uh, anymore, which is kind of a bummer because that's the fun stuff. But um, theoretically, with that headset, you could swim. It's supposed to be weatherproof. Um, like I said, sometimes it works great. Sometimes it doesn't. But mm. 
it's still better than the bone mic that we had before with the, you know, you had to push the button and that was your only comms. So I haven't been in the Coast Guard for years, so Cody, I'll have to brief us on that as far as what they use. But last time I served, yeah, it was a radio and then you had to push the button to speak with the aircraft. And yes, yeah. that encounters its own issues. Sometimes we had to blow in the radio literally <laughs> yeah. we're in the water with it. So blow in the radio so they can hear us clearly and communicate that way. It worked, but it's not the best and it's not hands-free. It's hands-free. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that part of that Axinus system, part of their, you know, selling point was that the military uses it. So I'd be shocked if they weren't using it. It's pretty cool. But yeah, but the military uses garbage too sometimes. So it's not always a selling <laughs> point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah um, it is what it is. So you mentioned uh, firefighting over there, but I know you guys actually do some some fire combative missions, I guess. What? Yeah, is is that like a collateral duty you guys do? You just help out or that's also a, a big part of the mission? It's actually a huge part of our mission. So not only is I'm kind of selling Austin like Australia sells themselves, like it's really great. But then if I start telling you about it, there's a lot of bad stuff about it, too. So all the Californians listening, Austin is terrible. Don't move here. But never mind. Um, Wait, where did uh, sorry, where did Joe Rogan move? We're big fans of Joe Rogan. He, Is that awesome? Yeah, yeah. He moved here. Him and Elon are telling all their friends that Austin's the greatest thing ever. And those of us that are native are kind of annoyed by it. But Is, has it yeah. been a big influx of population since then? Uh, there's something like, so my buddy, one of the guys that I work with is a realtor on the side. And he said actually this morning that there's something stupid like 400 people moving to Austin either a day or a week. Okay. Either way, there's so much traffic and there's so many people moving here and it's all Joe Rogan and Elon's fault. (laughs) Do you know where Joe Rogan's compound is? (laughs) Like, is that a secret place in Austin somewhere? Well, uh, yes. The answer to that is yes. I do know where his house is. No way. I don't know what his address is. Right. But one of our pilots lives in the neighborhood next to him and knew where he moved in. And so he showed us all. You flew over Joe Rogan's new place? Yeah, we fly over his house all the time, actually. And you would have never known that, like, there's no big sign on his roof that says Joe Rogan lives here or whatever, you know. But um, had that pilot not known about it, none of us would have known about it. It's a cool house. You got to give us a little dirt. Yeah. What's this house look like? It, so I, to be honest, and if Joe Rogan listens to this, like, I'm sorry, dude, like <laughs> call me and I'll buy you a beer or something. But, um, I was a little bit disappointed. Like, would I take his house? Absolutely. It's a beautiful house. Um, but when you hear about like all the money that that guy's bringing in, I, I was expecting a little more. He's got a pool. It's a very nice, beautiful house. It's on the shores of Lake Austin, which I would straight up murder somebody to have. A beautiful location. But I don't know. I guess what I had pictured in my mind was was going to be something a little nicer, maybe. I don't know. Like it's not a mansion per se? Is that what we're saying? I mean, to you and me, like normal people, for sure, it's a huge house. But... Compared to the other houses that I've seen on Lake Austin, it, it's 
maybe in the middle somewhere. It's not a dump by any means, but it's I've I've seen some cooler houses. You say his, his pool is bitching or not? Nah? <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, I would hang out in his pool for sure. All we've seen are like the Google images of it, right? Like or flying over it from, you know, 800 feet above it. So right. it's not like I hovered in his backyard and was like, oh, check this out. Hey, Joey. It's totally a nice house. Definitely. Well, I just hear Sorry, you got on a tangent, but I do hear he's opening up a comedy situation out there, right? Like, he's, his, yes, his objective uh, is to open up a whole huge comedy scene out there. And I'm totally open to that. That would be amazing. But the without like, I'll shoot the squirrel, right? Because I went on a tangent, but um, a bunch of the big tech companies in California are relocating and they're relocating to Austin, like Tesla's building a humongous plant that I guess is where they're going to be building the that super ugly Tesla truck, I guess, is going to come from Austin. Oracle and, you know, like Dell Computers is based here. So it's a very techie city. The California folk, I don't blame them whatsoever. They can sell their house in California for millions and then come here and spend, you know, half that on an absolutely beautiful home and still have, you know, half a million dollars sitting in the bank. So... I don't blame them whatsoever. It just like I built a house here in 2010 for like 195,000. It was like 1900 square foot nice ish house for, you know, whatever my class is. Um, it was on a golf course lot, like nothing fancy, but it was a nice house. And I couldn't build that same house for probably less than 400,000 now, 10 years later just because of the population boom. So but you're saying how big is this house? Like 1,900 square feet, 2,000 square feet. Okay, and sorry, how much you said it was worth? Then? It was, I think I bought it for like 195 in 2010. Yeah. And I, I could not build that same house now for probably less than 400. I mean, to level with you though, in my neck of the woods, you have these one-story janky townhouses with, say two bedroom but total garbage they're selling for eight hundred thousand Canadian so that's like man. six and a half to seven hundred thousand so yeah but you're like to ever afford it you're right around the corner from whistler though so that's the other thing and i don't know yeah. whistler is nothing compared to austin but anyways shooting that swirl um austin is um, in the middle of what we call hill country. So the Texas hill country and it's all cedar trees. So I don't even want to compare it to an evergreen tree because, you know, like pine trees and all that stuff like you have up in that area smell amazing and they're awesome. Um, cedar trees are the devil. So they're these essentially Christmas tree looking trees that all you got to do is look at it wrong in the summertime and it'll spontaneously combust and they're everywhere. There's a billion of them. So needless to say, when things get really hot here, everything dries out and you know, even like a spark from a rancher welding their fence or something like that 
will cause just these huge, massive wildfires. Um, and so our mission at Starflight is, um, I guess our three, four main missions are the helicopter EMS. That's our bread and butter every day that we do. The hoist rescues, either land or water. And then firefighting is probably our third most common. Um, and then we also provide a little bit of law enforcement support. Um, obviously we're not like, I don't carry a weapon with me on shift, but doing things like searches for, you know, somebody that ran in a pursuit following the car or they bailed on a pursuit. Um, a lot of the police departments have their own air assets down here, but if they're unavailable, they can call us as a backup to go and search for those people. Um, but back to the firefighting part, um, the hill country is fairly terrain intensive, so you can't just drive a fire truck up to a lot of these fires and you know put the fire out. Um, it's a lot of, not as bad as the mountains in California, but a lot of steep, very hilly, rocky terrain. Um, and so our mission at Starflight is to support the ground fire assets with Bambi bucket drops. So um, the aircraft, similar to that short haul that I was explaining earlier, we hook up this bucket, it's called the Bambi bucket, underneath the aircraft um, onto a cargo hook. And it carries 108, I think it's 185 gallons of water, something like that. Um, and then the pilot can, the pilot has a button on their collective on the controls in the helicopter that will uh, electrically signal that Bambi bucket to release the water load. And so um, it's but not always- 185 go gallons is minimal, isn't it? When you're combating a fire, isn't that basically a toddler peeing on a bonfire? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, sometimes if the fire is that intense, um, it'll do a little bit of damage. It'll at least calm things down, hopefully, to slow the spread down enough. So in optimal firefighting conditions for us, we have a water source like a lake or um, a pond, something nearby that we can dip out of quickly and do a lot of really quick repetitions. Um, it doesn't always work out that way, but um, usually there's something that we can dip out of quick that'll get us from water drop back to the pickup point, back over the fire within, I don't know, a few minutes, five minutes maybe. So is there a strategy when you're utilizing this, this what do you call it again? Yeah, it's called a Bambi bucket. Yeah, so um, you're using that. What's the strategy? Are you, are you shooting for a specific part of the fire? Is it only used when the fire is at its primal and building stage or if it's growing, where do you, where do you drop it? What's sure. the strategy? So, um, in order for us to rig and launch on a fire mission, there has to be some sort of immediate life threat to either, uh, fire personnel, people on the ground or some sort of structure. So a neighborhood, somebody's house, somebody's barn, something like that. Um, if it's just a grass field on fire, we're probably not gonna go out and, and drop on that. Um, but 
like in the hill country on these hills where there's spots that the firefighters literally cannot get to it. They're having to hike in like the crews out West, um, to get to it. That's where we kind of come in with a lot of benefit. So what we try and do is we try and drop in a line, if that makes sense. So we'll go along the head of the fire and drop one bucket and it's, it's a little bit harder than it sounds. It's almost kind of like playing a video game, like the crew chief sitting in the door of the helicopter with the door open, looks down at the line of the fire and it's on the crew chief to tell the pilot. So our, our commands are drop, drop, drop. And on the third drop, the pilot will hit that button to release the water. And sometimes the wind will take it and it's not a good drop. Sometimes we're too high. And if the fire's hot enough, it just turns that water into mist and it's not really. So there's a little bit of playing with it. Like you got to get the altitude of the aircraft just right. You got to get your line. Ish. Usually like 80 to 100 feet, sometimes okay. higher, depending on obstacles. As in the um, bucket's that high or the kilo yeah. is that? Okay. Um, I think the bucket hangs. You're, you're really like, you're going to make me look stupid if I say this wrong. But I think the bucket's got some something like 25 feet of, you know, from the bottom of the bucket to the bottom of the aircraft is only something like 25, 30 feet, something like okay. that. So yeah, the aircraft is usually flying at like 80 to a hundred feet. Um, does that affect the pilots handling and maneuvering that those heat patches? Cause I know, you know, you could ride the heat waves and when you're flying a helo, I don't know that much about flight per se, but you know, like cold is going to affect the flight differently than the heat. Now does the fire and everything that's getting emitted into the air affect the flight? In my experience, the heat itself hasn't affected our operation it's more of the smoke so we have to fly uh, obviously we're not going to fly through the smoke right because that's essentially flying through clouds and the pilot can't see where he's going so that's a part of it um i don't think that i on the fires that i've been on as a crew chief have not really been affected by the heat of it um when you pick up the water, like a gallon of water weighs what, eight pounds, right? Something like that. So when you pick up 185 gallons of water, it's pretty heavy load. And so as the pilots flying along and re we release that, all of a sudden the, the helicopter was carrying, I don't know, what is the math of that? Like thousand plus pounds of water, right? And then all of a sudden it's all gone within a few seconds. And now the helicopter is a few thousand or thousand something pounds lighter. It'll, you know, kind of react that way. Um, but it, it's a lot of fun figuring out when to get that, you know, like me personally, it usually takes me a drop or two to figure out what's going to be just right in my timing. So once you get that initial thing down, you get kind of into a jive with the pilot. Um, you just fly that line and you drop a bucket and then you go pick up another bucket and you come back and you just start off where you left off. Right. I feel like it's almost like paintball, right? Cause at least the shitty paintball, the ball doesn't go straight. So you got to arc it. And in a similar way, 
with this with this what is it the bambi bucket what do we call it again the yeah 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 so you have to time it and you probably have to drop it before you get to yeah the the fire's head as you were saying so 100 percent. so that's what i'm really bad at is like figuring out when to start saying drop and it's it's got to be a cadence just like everything else right because the pilot's gonna think in his head all right all right, he just said drop, so it's almost time. But then if I'm like drop, uh, drop, drop, it's going to throw him off, right? So that's part of it for me too is like figuring out the timing of the airspeed and, you know. Yeah, you're, you're it, running it, behind. You just go drop, drop, drop. <laughs> yeah, and then they're like, crap. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Usually, like I said, it. We just went out and did a demo for the the Austin Fire Department, hired some new guys, and we went out and did a a demo for them. And they wanted me to drop three buckets. And uh, the first one was absolutely terrible, but that was the pilot's fault. And then (laughs) the second one was a little bit better, but still pretty terrible. And that one was my fault. And then the third one, (laughs) we finally got it. but it's fun. It's uh, like I said, I kind of compare it to playing a, a video game. It's, you know, figuring out the coordination of it. It's it's a lot of fun. I'm too big a Joe Rogan fan not to ask, is his house potentially at risk of fire? I guess Ooh, any houses? Or? Good question. Um, the other bank of the lake, which is probably three to 500 yards away from his house definitely is. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he should have it in the back of his mind for sure. How much land does he like have just eyeballing it? Oh, maybe like three acres, something like that. That's it. The guy only bought three acres. What? But it's, it's three acres of pristine, like lakefront property. So Still, I feel like, I, and I'm I'm totally are. guessing. Like he could probably have I don't know five or six acres. I don't know, but it's. But still, if I were guessing, thing. it's yeah. I don't know, but it's it's lakefront on an awesome lake. So hmm. take that for what it's worth. Yeah, I figured he'd have more just to dirt bike and do whatever and go shoot some arrows from a long distance away or something. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, well, that's cool. So how often do you have to respond to these fire cases, say, so, the heat season? Yeah, that also has a season, like you just said. Um, probably early June through September, October. Probably end of September is our fire season. Um, and that's just because that's when things are the hottest, right, when it dries out. Mm-hmm. Um it really depends. This last year, we had a really busy fire season. Um, there were a lot of really big fires. Um, we could do like one day this last summer fire season, the aircraft, I think, did three fires in one day. Um, maybe one a week if I'm shooting from my hip in fire season. Um, if there's a big incident, like 2011, we had a huge fire down here, um, is a really sad deal. So east of Austin, one of the counties has some really tall, um, they're not pine trees, maybe they are pine trees, I don't know, but really tall looking pine trees, um, 
and that whole area caught on fire, like thousands of acres, big fire, California type fire. Um, and then in Travis County, we had our own fire going on at the same time and that it burned down tons of houses. It was a, a pretty sad deal. Um, but those guys were out there and that was obviously before I got to Starflight, but Starflight was out there for, you know, weeks fighting the fire that entire time. So, and a normal fire season, the last two years I've been at, at Starflight, our fire season, I would say we average maybe a fire or two a week, unless it's a big incident. Mm-hmm. So, um, I know I wanted to talk about, cause I, I did a little brief research on Wikipedia and unfortunately ran into the Kristen McLean 2015 incident. Yeah. Um, and I, I would like to maybe yeah, talk about that and maybe you can share that story just so people understand kind of the, the risks that are associated with Starflight. Sure. Um, so anytime you put somebody on a hoist, it's a risky deal, right? Um, it's not something that everybody does and there's very few people that are, are proficient experts at hoist rescue medicine. Um, Kristen is without a doubt the reason why I am at Starflight. So, um, like I said, when I was a kid, like 15 years old, I was an explorer, which is like a high school program for kids that think that they might want to be like a firefighter or a cop or something like that. Um, so I was riding around on this fire engine with, uh, the guys that I was a part of that crew with back in the day. And Starflight came in and and got this guy that was kind of messed up. And when I saw those guys and the flight crew that got off the helicopter and just how kind of everybody was looking to those two people as to like what to do, um, that was when I knew I wanted to be a flight medic. And then in 2012, when I was finally qualified to apply for Starflight, Um, I applied, I went through their testing process and allegedly came in number two in the process and they were only hiring one, but came in second place. Um, Kristen was in charge of that hiring process. And from, from when I was a 15 year old kid until that process, I wanted to work for Starflight because of all the cool shit that they did. Right. Like. Nobody else has a hoist in Texas. Nobody else fights fires, you know, and does EMS and does all this cool stuff like Starflight did. Um, But then I went through this process and I met Kristen and she terrified the ever living. Can I say shit? Is that a thing? We bleep that out later. So she terrified me, right? Because she was like, the best of the best. Um, everybody respected her. She was very like no nonsense, amazing at what she did. Just, you could tell that everybody respected Kristen and she was so humble and so nice to all of us, not just me, but to everybody that was in that process and turned it for me into okay, yeah, they do all of this cool stuff and they're all the best of the best, right? But they're all really super cool people. Like they're all really awesome, nice people. 
Um, and so that's what ultimately turned Starflight into what it is for me now, still to this day. Like, even with all of the cool stuff that I get to do and these beautiful $12 million helicopters that I get to fly in that are brand new and all this cool equipment that we have, the people at Starflight are still my number one, like, I would do anything for these people. And she was was what turned Starflight into that for me. Um, she could have been super like ruthless and just, you know, hammered us in this interview process trying to break us, you know, and she wasn't. She was just so nice and so welcoming and, you know, went out of her way to make sure that we were comfortable because she knew what we were going through was stressful, right? We were, uh, I think this last time in 2018, when I finally got hired, there were something, there were over a hundred applicants for my one spot, right? So they narrowed that down, but she knew what we were going through was intensely just competitive and stressful. And we all wanted the job just as bad as the other guy did. Um, and she was just kind of this like calming, just mentor person to look up to. Um, and so in 2015, they were doing a rescue out of the green belt. So part of this um, hill country that I'm talking about with Austin, there's a really cool, what we call a green belt that runs through the middle of the city. So you can go, it's got a creek there, Barton Creek, it's called, runs through the middle of this green belt. And it's just a really awesome area to go. It's like one of my top places to go on planet earth still to this day, you can go down there and just chill by the water. You're in the middle of this like million plus population city, but you're surrounded by just trees and rocks and river. And it's just awesome. Right. So, uh, people often go down there and, uh, fall off of, you know, some rocks or break a leg or break an ankle or something like that. And so getting them out of there is really tough to do by ground. It, it could take, you know, hour plus to get them out by, by big wheel or by, you know, ground search and rescue guys. Um, and so a lot of our business in the summertime will be going in and hoisting them out. Um, even though it's a basic life support injury, it's less of a threat or less of a danger to the fire guys and the EMS crews if we hoist them out. Um, even though the hoist can be kind of dangerous, it's a lot quicker for the patient and it's a lot less dangerous for the fire and EMS guys if we just yank them out by hoist instead of, you know, those guys having to ruck them out by by a big wheel and, and uh, Stokes basket. So in the summertime, that's a lot of our business going and getting stuff like that. Um, I think it was April, 2015, Kristen was the rescuer. Um, it was night or it was kind of late afternoon, kind of transitioning into nighttime. Um, they went and got this lady that had broken her ankle in the green belt. Um, they were kind of extracting out of that location. Um, our old aircraft, we used to fly in a, a Eurocopter EC-145 um, and we couldn't bring the patient directly into the cabin with that aircraft. So the crew chief would have to pick the rescuer and the patient up, 
relocate to an area where the aircraft could land, set the patient and the rescuer down, retrieve the hoist hook, and then land the aircraft. So uh, we called that a seven meter delivery. So they were on their way to uh, to drop them off at a seven meter so they could load the lady up and either the helicopter or the ambulance, didn't matter which one. Wait, sorry, and, so are uh, you saying you can't hoist the litter into the helicopter at this time? We can now. Yeah, yeah at that we, time you could not. We do now. Back then, we couldn't. So you're saying what, um, what would they do? They would hoist it, relocate, lower the the litter the with the, you know, Kristen in this scenario, and then the helicopter lands, and then you load up the litter? Yeah, exactly. So that's a process. Um, Oof. Yeah, it was a it was definitely a process. Um, so we would extract the rescuer and the patient up to the skid of the aircraft, and then uh, figure out wherever our landing zone was, and then lower the patient down because you can't in the EC one forty five per the hoist specs you couldn't land the aircraft with with a load on the hoist. So the aircraft would, yeah, definitely like you get a skid on your foot, right? And no steel toe is going to be able to fix that. But, um, so we'd get the rescuer and the patient to the skid. We'd find a new landing zone. We'd lower the rescuer and the patient back down to that landing zone and then land the aircraft. Um, something basic life support like that nine times out of 10, what would happen was an ambulance would just meet the aircraft at the landing zone and load them up and take them to the hospital. Um, if the patient was like, you know, a bad trauma patient or something and they needed to go with us, we would land the aircraft, pull the stretcher out of the back, load the patient up, put them back in the aircraft and then take off again and go. Um, but in Kristen's case, uh, that night, um, what they believe happened was that, and nobody really is ever going to know the video quality. Um, I don't believe was good enough to see, you know, details, but, um, what they believed happened is that she just hooked up wrong. Um, she was an amazing rescuer. She had done it hundreds of times and, you know, accidents happen. So she, um, she fell, uh, I think somewhere around a hundred feet and, uh, obviously did not survive the fall. And, um, yeah, that's that. So, uh, to this day, that's the only, uh, knock on wood. That's the only incident that we've had. It's the only fatality that we've had as a program. Um, obviously, what, uh, what is the theory as far as how she hooked up? Port, like wrong um I, i'm not gonna speculate because like i said there's nobody really that's ever gonna know um you know obviously the ntsb and and everybody did a really big investigation into you know the whole entire incident but um there's some theories on what they think happened but um as far as knowing an exact cause um, I don't, nobody's ever going to know. Right. Um, when we come out as a rescuer, the thing that we do that is sometimes different than other hoist programs 
is our rescuer is always right next to the patient. So very rarely do we have an unattended patient load um, just for patient safety and for like common sense of, of our mission. But when we come out, um, all of our crews wear attack air flight vest that is our hoist harness. Um, we connect that vest together with a tri-link kind of in, you know, the chest area. And then we're wearing leg loops, obviously that's, it's an entire integrated vest. Um, so when we come out with the patient, we're hooked up to what we call an HRV. So helicopter rescuer victim. Um, and it's essentially a steel ring with three carabiners that are linked to that ring by webbing. Um, I think CMC, the company that makes all this rescue stuff, I think they made it for us. And the rescuer is on one um, carabiner connected to that tri-link. And then the patient is on another, obviously. Um, we use what's called a Tiermont rescue bag. So essentially the patient goes into this litter that has bridles that hook up to this HRV that then connects to the hoist hook. Yep. Um, and then our med bag. So, um, the cool thing about Starflight is that we bring critical care medicine to the austere environment, right? So you have a patient in the middle of this green belt, or in the middle of a state park out west somewhere, something like that. Um, I can essentially, if I have somebody that like, we have a park out west of Austin by a, an hour or two called Enchanted Rock. It's a big granite dome. And there's a lot of rock climbing that goes on out there, right? So the guys will fall out there from, you know, 20, 30 feet. And they're a really messed up trauma patient but nobody can get to them because they're on the cliff of this or on the face of this cliff. And so we'll hoist our guys in and I can have whole blood products infusing in that patient, like almost immediately by the time I get hoisted in next to this guy. Right. So, um, you mean on we back put, of the ground? Yeah. So if, so like you're a rock climber, right. And you yeah. fall from this enchanted rock park and you're a nasty trauma patient. Like right? you got like a pelvic fracture and you're just, you're super messed up and you need, you're bleeding and you need blood. All of our providers are all critical care, either critical care nurses or critical care paramedics, which means our scope of practice, we call it. So the things that we can do to people, our, our treatments, that's a better word for it, um, are all at kind of this elevated above a normal nurse or a paramedic. There's a few more tricks in our toolbox, a few more tools in our toolbox, a few more medications, stuff like that, that we can do to that person at the bottom of where they fell from, right? So in the middle of BFE nowhere, we can hoist in a medic or a nurse and they can start critical care like the second that they come off hook, which is pretty cool. Well, um, you still have to do an, an assessment, right? You can't yeah, 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 obviously. But okay. the fact is, is like, you know, in, in a lot of other SAR programs throughout the country, like 
the guy coming down on that hook may or may not be a paramedic, right? Right. Um, so the care that we can bring down in like our med bag and all of this stuff is one of the highest level of cares delivered by hoist insertion in the country, which is pretty cool. Like it's easy to get braggy and, and egos about it. Right. Cause very few other people do it, but, um, it's pretty cool. So, um, I forgot where I was going with that, but, well, we were talking uh, about Kristen. Yeah. So Kristen, <laughs> Kristen's deal not to, uh, uh, and it's definitely not a joking matter. It's a big deal to a lot of us still that, that knew her. And, you know, there are people at the program that we're best friends with her, right? Like I knew her through a hiring process. And then after that, just working with her, um, I was not as close to her as some of the other people still at this program were. Um, but I, that, I, I, I now remember why I was saying all that. So explaining how we are connected to the hoist when we come up. Um, that's kind of the process of it. And so somewhere in that chain um, is what they think was just not, something wasn't lined up right in that chain of hookups coming up. And that's how she fell is what they think. Um, but she was hooked up because at what stage of the rescue was it? Was it initially upon the first hoist of her in? The yeah, yeah, they were on the they were on the extraction. So I think from what I know, the aircraft was in forward flight. So we do a lot of dynamic hoisting. So um, when you have that litter on, and the rotor wash likes to spin that litter, right? So what we do a lot of the times is we try and get forward flight as soon as we're clear of the obstacles on the ground, just to prevent that spin. And uh, so they were already in forward flight. Um, I don't think she was quite at the skid yet when she fell, um, but they had just been extracted. So interesting. That's something the Coast Guard doesn't do. That's a great technique. As or I, I don't know at least that the Coast Guard does that, but to prevent that spin to have forward flight, that's a great technique and one that would have prevented me from feeling nervous <laughs> a lot of times. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I've spun uh, my fair share of times underneath the aircraft. Um, my my initial partner, Jen is her name. She's one of my best friends and favorite partners still to this day. Um, I remember like I had maybe been here for a year, maybe a little bit less. And we have this picnic table out at the area that we train at. And it's, it's a really precision insertion for the crew chief to get the rescuer onto a small picnic table top. Right. And so for whatever reason on my insertion, I started freaking spinning and um, there's a lot of ways to combat it. Part of it is to just bring me back up and start forward flight and give it another go. Right. Um, but the other part of it is to just put me down and, um, she put me down on the top of this picnic table, which was super precision and, and good job. But I was so dizzy from spinning that I almost fell off the picnic table and she saw me going over and she hit up on the hoist and picked me back up. And yeah, if she had not picked me back up and caught me, I totally would have 
falling flat on my butt. But <laughs> that's a good, um, we call them flight mechanics, so crew chiefs for you guys. But that's that's a good. She's on her on her game. If she did yeah that. yeah she's yeah. A, a badass crew chief. But um, yeah, that's like putting the the litter on top of a med bag on top of a rescuer. That's a lot of surface area for that rotor wash to catch and and spin the load. So as soon as we can, we try and get forward flight um, to put the rotor wash behind the load and then, uh, yeah, bring them up. In the so. Coast Guard, as far as swimmers, when you're deploying with fins on your feet, it's pretty cool because we could start to use those as rudders in the wind and we maneuver them in a specific way that stops that spinning rotor wash effect. Yeah, it's, it's cool. As you gain more experience, you get really proficient at directing yourself in a specific position as you're maneuvering towards your, your patient or whatnot. Yeah, just, just for sure. Your so we still we still train in the Stillwater rescue environment. So I have a new hire right now. It's about to be cleared a new paramedic. And uh, I think it's next week we're going out to do his his water stuff. And so, yeah, we. Um, we wear the the fins down for that stuff. Um, he'll have to be in a dry suit, which is going to suck for him. But um, I'll do the same thing, like going down, just trying to figure that out, like totally being a goofball on the hoist hook, you know, trying to figure out like, all right, if I put my right leg out like this, I'll spin this way. And if I do this, it's but yeah, it's it's fun, man. It's uh, and you swim, we don't would spin themselves out of the door so they would. <laughs> activate an, an excessive spin it was like their their spin move they called it spin move yeah. and just get lowered showing off that's hilarious yeah. i always so i i said earlier one of my favorite pilots jim is his name um was a coast guard pilot for ship forever um and then our our assistant chief pilot is actually also retired coast guard um and man i tell you what like the stories that they tell of just like i don't want to be cheesy but the brotherhood right and the the swimmers running around naked in their crew quarters and they'd always give them the goat when they walked in you know and stuff like that i was like man i should have been so full disclosure i was about three quarters of the way through paramedic school uh when the guardian came out and i was like oh man that's i should go do that and I went and I talked to a Coast Guard recruiter in Minneapolis and he told me that the swimmers were EMTs and that I really wouldn't be able to use my paramedic stuff. And so I didn't do it. Mm. And uh, looking back on it, man, hindsight 2020, I, sh- I should have done it because the like when it's time to be serious, they're they're the guys. Right. But when they're not their goofballs and just you know screwing around that's totally me so that would have been a blast i think we just found out recently on the podcast that one station i believe in alaska maybe sitka is actually operating rescue swimmers that are paramedics but that would be it or maybe they're just advanced emts maybe that's what it was yeah anyway um that would have been cool back then it wasn't a thing and i was like man i just went through two years of school for essentially nothing so sorry i didn't mean to cut you off no no worries but yeah the guardian is pretty funny as far as the recruitment process of that and me and cody have actually discussed maybe 
in a sense, we're helping out a little bit with that recruitment and, and getting a little hype up there once again. Cause yeah, I think there was the guardian phase. It died out and then now it's current day and there's not much, there's, there's a couple shows that came out as far as the media goes, but, um, I, th- I think they're always struggling a little bit to recruit. So, yeah, you know, whatever, Man. whatever. Hindsight, I should have done it. So it is, <laughs> is, is what it is. I'm happy I'm at the spot I'm at now, but it would have been cool. So, yeah. So you're talking about uh, Kristen McLean and as a thanks for sharing her story that said she was in the recruitment process for you. And you were just telling me before we started that you're kind of in that position now yourself as far as recruiting. Is it new star members or? I am. Yeah. So to be a, either a flight paramedic or a flight nurse. Um, so the way the United States works, it's kind of um, it's kind of messed up, actually. Most of the helicopter ambulances are owned by for profit companies. So they charge tens of thousands like my cousin's kid was flown 17 minutes and it was a forty eight thousand dollar bill. And that's pretty messed up. Um, How much? $48,000. So the cost of a brand new vehicle, like my truck wasn't even that much. But they charge that because these companies are owned by investment groups that are looking to make money um, off of, you know, flying sick and injured people around, which sucks. But the reality of it is, is that most of the United States healthcare system is that way like hospitals are also you know some of them are for profit but nothing that john hamilton's going to do about that so moving on um to be a flight paramedic like i said or a flight nurse um the bare minimum qualifications is three years of busy experience uh, for a paramedic it has to be either on a ground ambulance in a busy 911 system Uh, And for the nurses, we like ICU nurses, but either three to five years of ER or ICU experience. It's really competitive. Very rarely are there a shortage of candidates for a spot. A lot of like medical tests, like medical EMS knowledge, critical care knowledge tests, written tests. And then if you're lucky to get hired, you work as a paramedic nurse team. And then for Starflight, uh, we already talked about the physical agility part, right? So you got to do all that. Um, we require five years of experience. Um, the reason that we add two years to kind of the national standard is because we're a small group and we can. So we're a little bit you know, picky about who we choose to bring into our small family. Five years as either a paramedic or a ER ICU nurse. The thing that that kind of sets somebody up for success at Starflight is somebody that we're all type A personalities, right? Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, we're all very strong type A's, um, very go-getter mentality, um, not doing the bare minimum, people that go out and um, teach and get instructor certifications and you know, go through any sort of extra classes that you can do. The United States has, um, for both nurses and paramedics, what's called either a certified flight paramedic certification or a certified flight nurse certification. 
Um, that's another test. It's like 150 questions. It's to this day, one of the hardest tests I've ever taken. So you have to have that certification on top of your medic or nurse, you know, license and just somebody that we know that's going to fit in with the group, which is hard to tell somebody because you either have it or you don't. Right. Um, but somebody that's humble and somebody that's a hard worker, enjoys life, doesn't take themselves too seriously, but at the same time, like when shit hits the fan, they're the ones that are thinking on their feet and, you know, really getting stuff done. Um, I don't want to say the best of the best because I've worked with numerous paramedics and nurses on the ground ambulances and in the ERs that are far better paramedics than I will ever be. And flying is just not their thing, right? Um, but you have to be like hashtag humble brag. You got to be kind of good at what you do because we're getting called to the really sick people and the really messed up people. And so, you know, the difference to providing that person the best care possible is what we expect out of our clinicians at Starflight. So seems like a, I looked up the, the pay too, because you guys were posting that when you were looking for hire, fifty nine thousand to seventy seven thousand for a flight paramedic, paramedic, and then the registered nurse between sixty k and eighty eight thousand a year. So it's definitely better paying than, from my knowledge, what a unfortunately what EMTs and ground paramedics are paid, which is always to me a, a outrageous for what they do. And yeah. They, yeah. We're in this weird kind of shift right now in EMS. Like, you know, nurses deserve the money that they make for sure. But they also require degrees. And most of the time now they require bachelor's degrees at a bare minimum. A paramedic can go to a six-month what I call patch factory and learn the bare minimums to pass the national registry test and come out of it the other side a paramedic right that's not the person that i want taking care of my family like no if if people listening have been in that like no hard feelings whatsoever but if i can choose between a paramedic that had to go to school for a minimum of two years versus a paramedic that went through a real quick, good enough program, I'm going to pick the guy that went to school for a while, right? So if paramedics want to start making what we are worth, we got to give the people a reason to pay us what we're worth. Mm. And that's another soapbox that I could spend all day on for sure. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, your range that you just said is is pretty accurate. Usually our paramedics start off around somewhere between 65 and 68 a year. Um, that's a base salary. So being a small group, if somebody gets hurt or goes on vacation or, you know, whatever, there's some some good operation or some good opportunity for overtime. So I have not made my base salary um, either year I've been here, but um, if somebody were to just show up and do their 40 hours a week, um, a medic is going to start somewhere around 65 to 68. 
Um, we're working on that. So a little plug for anybody that maybe wants to work for Starflight in the future. We're trying to fix that as of right now. Um, and then, yeah, nurses are like somewhere between 70 and 80, usually starting off. Mm. Um, uh, just ending this podcast on a, I guess, different note. I should have asked this earlier, to be honest, but you mentioned, yeah, you guys tend to show up when shit hits the fan on these more serious cases. What is the most serious case you've had to deal with in your two years there? Oh, man. Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to pull an answer on you. That's kind of a jackass answer. And, and I don't mean it to be that way. Um, but mental health in, in public safety right now is, is a really big deal. Um, paramedics, firefighters, cops, especially cops right now, man, I, I feel so bad for my law enforcement buddies. I, you couldn't pay me enough to be a cop right now in the United States, but um, asking a paramedic that like <laughs> my boss actually has the the best answer to this question. So people walk up to you and they say, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And his answer is pineapple on pizza. <laughs> so yeah, honestly, the reason I was going to ask you this or oh, I came in my mind. How about that early? And I was like, that's just not something we typically ask in search and rescue. That said, when you're dealing with a podcast and people trying to listen in, that is, unfortunately, people want to know. Yeah, that's, that's the intention grabber. Thing. Definitely. And, and I get it. And like, I, I mean, no, like you're not going to cause me nightmares tonight by any means. But um, to be 100% honest, like when you've been a paramedic for a minute, you you have to find a way to cope with the crap that you see, right? Um, for me, I... I don't know why it is that I'm wired the way that I am, um, but I I have a really easy time of just kind of forgetting and moving on from it. Um, we see a lot of bad stuff, and for some reason, nine times out of ten, it doesn't really affect me. Like, it'll affect me in that moment, obviously. Like, I'm not this stone-cold-hearted, like, you know, statue of a human. Obviously, it gets to me, but we kind of deal with it as a crew, like, man, that was really effed up or that poor guy or that poor family, you know, having to live through that. And we work through it as a crew. And then it's just kind of the past. And, you know, everybody's got their different ways of coping with it. For me, it's, and that's actually why I started following you guys was um, the workouts that you post, right? So I'll go and I'll spend uh, a few hours at the gym and that's my way of, of coping with it, with that crap. Um, for others, we have like Tanya Glenn is our, our, um, staff psychologist. She works with crews all over the country. She's amazing. Sometimes it's going to Tanya and, you know, spilling your guts out to Tanya. That's how some people work. But, um, to answer your question, um, there's nothing at Starflight that I can think of just because of that mechanism. Like I kind of shed it. There's nothing at Starflight that I can think of. Um, but as far as probably the top incidents that I've been to in my career that I kind of carry with me, um, in, I'll have to look, there's a plaque on my wall from it. I think it was 2007. 
something like that. Um, the Interstate 35W bridge collapse in Minneapolis. If you guys Google that, I think something like 18 people died. This bridge that was way too old that carried uh, the traffic for 35, which is a super busy interstate in Minnesota. Um, they just straight up collapsed. And um, so I was involved in that. Um, and then personally, I think the worst call that I would say that I've ever been to was um, a firefighter uh, out for one of the fire departments that I used to fly with west of Austin, uh, rolled his pickup truck um, late at night and was really super like, for all intents and purposes, should have died from that wreck. Um, and I think that's the one, like when people ask me that question, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? That's probably the call that comes to my mind. You know, thankfully for that guy, the team that showed up to take care of that guy was, was the A team that night. Um, me and my partner had a really good jive going on on the helicopter and the, the people that took care of him on the ground were, were the best of that service. What was the trauma? He um, rolled his truck and they think that he was partially ejected. So he had a lot of head trauma, a lot of just, uh, I mean, everything trauma, everything on that poor guy was broken. Um, but that that's the call that kind of sticks to me with like when people ask that question, what's the worst thing? Because he's, he's again like talking about that EMS captain that got swept away, you know, initially in the beginning of the podcast, that's kind of the same thing, right? You're going to take care of your brother. So, um, but yeah, man, I, I don't mean to dodge that question. It's just like the really bad gnarly stuff we kind of deal with on, you know, maybe a day or two worth of time. And then we kind of shed it away just because mm. it would eat you alive if, if you carried every single bad call you ever ran, you know? Yeah. John Hamilton, I think, uh, covered a lot. <laughs> yeah, man. I, uh, I appreciate it. I can talk a lot, so I'm sorry if, if we went over <laughs> anything like that, but it's fun to talk about for sure. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, but I appreciate it. Anytime. Hey,